The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Where Were You in 92 is a production of iHeartRadio. It reflects the fear of the time period, the repression of people's sexuality, the homophobia, all of that was rooted in fear of AIDS. In that respect, the album is one of the first full albums that really is a reflection of the AIDS era. Welcome to Where Are You in 92, a podcast in which I, your host, Jason Lanfier, look back at the major hits, one-hit wonders, shocking news stories, and irresistible scandals that shaped what might be the wildest, most eclectic, most controversial 12 months of music ever. This week, after Queen singer Freddie Mercury's death in the fall of 1991, musicians began confronting the AIDS crisis head-on. Madonna, Elton John, U2, and salt and Peppa wrote songs that addressed the disease. R&B newcomers TLC appeared on talk shows with condoms emblazoned on their flashy attire. Meanwhile, the compilation album Red, Hot, and Dance, featuring three exclusive tracks from George Michael, set out to raise awareness about safe sex, raise funds for AIDS charities, and change the narrative around LGBTQ rights. But as a 1992 New York Times article declared, tackling AIDS was a creative and ethical minefield for pop stars. In this episode, we look at the various ways they navigated it. It was November 1991. Freddie Mercury had not performed live with Queen in five years. The group's last show with him at Nebworth Park in England had drawn an audience of more than 120,000 adoring fans. But he was too weak and in too much pain to take the stage ever again. Mercury had just returned from Switzerland and had been living as a recluse at Garden Lodge in London. Speculation that he was dying was rampant. Images of him looking pale and gaunt had been splashed all over the tabloids and papers. He hadn't revealed that he had AIDS to the public, or even to his parents, but the press and paparazzi lingered outside the walls surrounding his property. They knew something was wrong. He would spend most of the day in bed, sometimes drifting through his home and garden. He was emaciated and losing his eyesight, and could barely walk. He had stopped taking the medication that had been keeping him alive. A few select visitors were invited to see him. Less than two weeks later, he had lost his sight and was living off fluids. On Friday, November 22nd, Mercury asked to see Queen's manager, Jim Beach, who came to his home and met with him in his bedroom. Hours later, Beach emerged, saying Mercury was ready to tell the world the truth. At midnight, his team released an official statement on behalf of the singer. In addition to disclosing that he had tested positive and now had AIDS, the statement read, quote, I hope that everyone will join with my doctors and all those worldwide in the fight against this terrible disease. Two days later, on Sunday, November 24th, 1991, Mercury died. 
He was 45. A few weeks later, Bohemian Rhapsody, Queen's most beloved track, was re-released. It would soar to number one on the UK singles charts, its second time hitting number one in the UK, and stay there for five weeks. All the proceeds from the re-release, which totaled around one million pounds, were donated to the Terence Higgins Trust, the UK's leading HIV and AIDS charity. The song is the UK's third biggest selling single of all time, and the most streamed song of the 20th century. The remaining members of Queen knew they had to do something. Before his death, Freddie Mercury had faded from the public eye. The most recent published images of him were tragic and exploitative, signaling his impending death. The band wanted to celebrate his life, the Freddie they knew and loved. As guitarist Brian May said at the time, giving their frontman and friend a proper send-off was not only what they felt fans needed, but also the closure they needed. Mercury became the first high-profile person to die of an AIDS-related illness in the UK. But this disease was much bigger than him. AIDS-related deaths were on the rise. By January 1992, almost 450,000 AIDS cases had been reported to the Global Program on AIDS of the World Health Organization. But the estimated number of adult cases was 1.5 million. Tens of thousands were dying. In 1992, HIV infection became the leading cause of death for men between the ages of 25 and 44. By 1994, it would become the leading cause of death among all Americans between the ages of 25 and 44. The Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert took place on April 20th, 1992 at London's Wembley Stadium, where Mercury had delivered his dynamic performance at the iconic benefit event Live Aid in 1985. As Queen's songwriter and drummer Roger Taylor said on the eve of the concert, quote, Obviously losing Freddie has brought it home to us in a big way and many other people that I know. As time goes on, it becomes more of a threat. The threat is growing, I think. And I don't think the awareness is growing. So this seems like, especially for us, a good time to do this. In addition to Queen, the show's performers included Elton John, George Michael, David Bowie, Annie Lennox, Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin, Roger Daltrey of The Who, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Seal, Def Leppard, Lisa Stansfield, U2 via Satellite, and Liza Minnelli. Actress and longtime AIDS activist Elizabeth Taylor delivered an AIDS prevention speech. Clips of Mercury interacting with fans were played after her speech. The concert's sets ranged from the truly wild to the truly iconic. Elton John and Axl Rose led Queen's remaining members in an impassioned rendition of Bohemian Rhapsody, a song that was very much back in the zeitgeist due to the original version's appearance in a now legendary headbanging scene in the comedy Wayne's World. George Michael's take on Somebody to Love is astonishing. It's no wonder that when the cover was officially released a year later, it bolted to the top of the UK singles chart. And then, for God's sake, please go watch and re-watch, because you will need to, David Bowie and Annie Lennox's performance of Under Pressure, originally a Queen-Bowie duet. Decked out in an enormous black hooped tulle dress with a silver necklace lame top, Sporting the most fabulously exaggerated raccoon eyes, her voice shattering the stratosphere, Lennox manages to do the unthinkable and sort of outshine Bowie. Though he still absolutely slays in a mint green suit with his token velvety croon. The pair closed the number locked in a desperate melodramatic embrace that truly honors the rock opera hybrid songwriting Freddie Mercury perfected. They knew they'd nailed it, as Lennox recalled in Matt Richards and Mark Langthorne's 2016 book, Somebody to Love, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Freddie Mercury, quote, the performance was electrical and totally on point. It was one of the high points of my life. <laughs> and mine, 
I divide my life into before seeing Annie Lennox and David Bowie perform under pressure and after seeing Annie Lennox and David Bowie perform under pressure. The crazy thing? Fans didn't even know who, besides the remaining members of Queen, was performing when the concert's tickets went on sale. Still, all 72,000 of them were snatched up in just three hours. Remember, this was pre-internet. That was the power of Queen and Freddie Mercury. The concert's profits, reportedly some 12 million pounds, helped launch the AIDS charity organization, Mercury Phoenix Trust. The concert was also broadcast live on television and radio to 76 countries around the world, hitting an estimated audience of up to 1 billion. After Mercury's death, many who had never felt affected by the AIDS crisis suddenly were. The remaining members of Queen and the group's fans came to better understand what the disease was about. Some of the prejudice surrounding AIDS would start to fade away. The Freddie Mercury tribute concert was their glorious goodbye to a fallen hero. It was also a reckoning. With his passing, they were forced to confront the fact that they may have to say goodbye to many more. Pop music is supposed to make you feel good, at its best, good and sexy. Even when it's tackling unrequited love or a romance cut short, its sadness connects with us, makes us feel like we're not alone. If we too are suffering from heartache or relationship woes, it nudges us toward healing. This suffering is universal. But what if that sadness is deeper? What if the end of the relationship is the most permanent kind? What if the song is cloaked in the shadow of death? A 1992 New York Times article titled The Uneasy Alliance Between AIDS and Pop pondered these questions, arguing that pop music and AIDS were quote-unquote strange bedfellows. The piece read, quote, Forced together, pop and AIDS compromise each other, forming a contradictory alliance between an industry that markets sex as fun and a disease that links sex with death. How do you successfully capture the gravity of AIDS in a three and a half minute pop song? How do you sell it when many don't understand it or wish to turn their backs on it or worse, believe those suffering from it deserve to suffer? How do you capture something so dark, painful, and terrifying in a song without looking glib or insincere or preachy? And yet, how do you make people understand without conveying that this darkness, pain, and terror are synonymous with the virus? Because in 1992, AIDS was still considered fatal. The answer is both complicated and not. AIDS awareness and activism in pop was tough and risky territory, but for certain artists, the reality of the crisis, its severity, and in some cases, its proximity to their lives was undeniable. For them, the choice was simple. Do nothing or do something. AIDS demanded their attention, and it demanded action. In 1992, major artists and entertainers were taking action, partly because they felt if they didn't, who would? Politicians weren't doing enough, nor were churches. Summer 1992 was, in a sense, the summer of safe sex, at least when it came to the messaging a handful of musicians were putting out into the world, hoping their fans would choose to listen. One of those musicians was George Michael, who in 1992 was in the upper echelon of pop stars. He had performed in the Freddie Mercury tribute concert and devoted plenty of his time to AIDS philanthropy, all while dodging questions about his sexual orientation. Hey, I said this shit was complicated, but he had a new idea. John Carlin founded Red Hot, a nonprofit dedicated to fighting HIV and AIDS through music and pop culture with his friend Lee Blake in 1989. Since then, the organization has raised more than $15 million for charities like Amfar and ACT UP and released some 20 music compilations, starting with 1990's Red, Hot, and Blue, an album of reinterpretations of Cole Porter songs that featured artists like U2, David Byrne, Katie Lang, and Sinead O'Connor. In 1992, Carlin had lost his job at his Manhattan law firm. He had taken on Red Hot as a pro bono client of the firm, And while he says he was able to carry out all his responsibilities, it wasn't happy about his work with the group, says Carlin. I was basically kicked on the street around that time. 
And I didn't quite know what I was going to do. And then one day out of the blue, I got a call from someone uh, who worked very closely with George Michael named Andy Stevens. And Andy said, George is a big fan of Red Hot and Blue. He'd like to donate a song to your next album. And I'm thinking to myself, we don't have a next album. Carlin was at an impasse. It's as great as Red Hot and Blue was, and it cost me my job. It was exhausting. It wasn't exactly how I imagined my life at the moment. But in 1992, one thing that you could not do was turn down the gift of a George Michael song. George Michael essentially kicked off what became a series, which wasn't something that we had in mind. The other thing that's really important for people to understand about George Michael in 1992 was he wasn't out. So about George Michael, being famous and openly queer in 1992 was dangerous, especially given the close association between AIDS and gay men at the time. As the second episode of this podcast made clear, Virtually no well-known musicians were openly queer in 1992. Katie Lang, who came out that year, was one of the few. If a closeted pop superstar was willing to put his reputation on the line and lend Carlin's project the gravitas it needed, Carlin thought he should probably take the risk too. After all, this was an international crisis that had showed no signs of slowing down. George was a member of the gay community. The gay community was being ravaged. I think he had a boyfriend who was HIV positive at the time. 1992 was the worst year in the world for gay people. 1992 is the year where so many people died. And because the retrovirals hadn't come into play. So, so many people living with AIDS um, just crashed in 1992. If the Cole Porter covers compilation Red Hot and Blue targeted an affluent urban queer male audience, what was initially thought of as a chief demographic affected by HIV and AIDS, its follow-up would turn to another audience. This is something that where George was helpful, was who's at risk now? It was the young club kids. And it's much harder to tell young hormonal club kids to practice safer sex, these are the people going out, getting busy, didn't necessarily get the first message. Red Hot's second compilation was Red Hot and Dance, which consisted mostly of remix dance and pop tracks from the likes of Madonna, Seal, Crystal Waters, PM Dawn, Lisa Stansfield, and Sly and the Family Stone. Featuring cover art by Keith Haring, it was anchored by three new exclusive songs that George Michael donated to Red Hot. The top 10 nouveau disco cut, Too Funky, Do You Really Want to Know, and Happy. All of which he recorded for the follow-up to his acclaimed 1990 album, Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1. Too Funky was Michael's final single for his contract with Sony Music before he took legal action to get out of it. Claiming the label's lack of support for Red Hot and Dance was one of the reasons he wanted to cut ties with it. Dude was not fucking around. Slick, buoyant, and seductive, Red Hot and Dance could be considered an antidote to the melancholy and tragedy of the AIDS crisis. It suggested that change could come not only through research and activism, but through unity, through bodies, black, brown, white, queer, trans, straight, coming together. It was about liberation, leaving the shadows and living life, out in the open, on the dance floor, in the bedroom. But it was also about facing the truth. If in Too Funky, Michael sang, I Gotta Get Inside of You, his next track on Red Hot and Dance, Do You Really Want to Know, included the lyrics, I used to say it, but it's no longer true. Because what you don't know can really hurt you. It can kill you, baby. And then later, the world is full of lovers, night after night and week after week, trusting to luck and their pockets full of rubbers. The message was clear. Sex was inevitable. Safety was essential. To drive that message home, Red Hot and Dance was paired with a street poster campaign photographed by bigwig lensman Stephen Mizell, Stephen Klein, and Bruce Weber. Featuring queer and straight couples in intimate poses, 
the posters boasted the slogan, Safe Sex is Hot Sex. Red Hot also collaborated with MTV on a special that aired around the world. Directed by Mark Pellington, whose 1992 video for Pearl Jam's Jeremy would win four VMAs, the documentary, also titled Red Hot and Dance, included interviews with young people affected by HIV and AIDS, medical professionals, and celebrities like RuPaul, Cyndi Lauper, and salt and Peppa. AIDS is a sexually transmitted disease. So if you want to protect people, you have to talk about sex. Partly how we sold the Red Hot and Dance TV special to MTV was basically going in and saying, with all due respect, this whole channel is about selling sex to underage teenagers. It's like, this is why you exist. (laughs) Red Hot and Dance, the special, put condom use and queerness front and center. 1992 is really like a transition year, a tipping point around using condoms. There was a lot of work to make that part of people's behavior. The musicians involved in the Freddie Mercury tribute concert and Red Hot were among a new wave of entertainers advocating for safe sex and LGBTQ rights. It's changing behavior and changing the narrative. And I think that's the way you have to look at pop culture and propaganda. So there were a lot of people in the early 90s doing both of those things, and they had a huge impact. Those things had to be done. And Red Hot was just a little piece of that. It was part of a chorus of people saying, this makes no sense. You know, we're going to change the culture. Up next, after the break, we look at the other major artists who confronted the AIDS crisis in 1992, including salt and Peppa, Elton John, TLC, U2, and Madonna. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. It was the summer of 1992. The summer musicians were turning their attention to safe sex and the AIDS crisis. MTV aired Red Hot and Dance, a special to coincide with the release of an album of the same name. Assembled by the not-for-profit Red Hot organization, the record was a collection of George Michael songs and remixed dance tracks to raise money for AIDS awareness and charities. Also that summer, ABC broadcast In a New Light, a call to action in the war against AIDS, a two-hour AIDS awareness special introduced by Elizabeth Taylor and featuring performances and cameos from the likes of Anita Baker, Cher, Clint Black, Reba McIntyre, and salt and Peppa, set to AIDS imagery. The network donated its net advertising proceeds from the special to AIDS education, prevention, and support services. It was a significant move for a Big Four network. When it came to HIV and AIDS awareness in 1992, Salt and Peppa were doing the work. In fact, they were one of the first high-profile acts to put the cause to music. 
In August 1991, the trio had released Let's Talk About Sex. Okay, yeah, it was clearly intended to drop some jaws and sell some records. But the song was also essentially a safe sex campaign. In their minds, and in the minds of many AIDS activists, people were afraid to discuss sex, which was a major hurdle in combating the disease. Says Red Hot co-founder John Carlin, I have a good friend, Kendall Thomas, early AIDS activist, member of ACT UP, and he says something which has always stayed with me is, how come when people talk about the history of AIDS, people don't talk about sex? AIDS is also spread through intravenous drug users sharing needles. But the most common mode of exposure is through sex. Not placing sex at the heart of the conversation about HIV and AIDS was basically ignoring the real issue. Salt and Peppa weren't here for that. The hip-hop trio had already pushed the envelope with their 1986 far-from-subtle single, Push It. But with Let's Talk About Sex, they achieved a rare feat. They made a song about safe sex and tangentially about HIV and AIDS that was not only bold and uncomfortable enough to make listeners pay attention, but also smart, funny, at times pretty sexy, and not overly preachy. Check these lyrics. But anyway, ready or not, here he comes. And like a dumb son of a gun, oops, he forgot the condoms. Oh well, you say, what the hell, it's chill. I won't get got, I'm on the pill. Until the sores start to puff and spore. He gave it to you, and now it's yours. That there is some scary-ass high school health class shit. But also facts. So much hip-hop at the time was objectifying women. But these ladies were taking the genre by the balls and taking real talk into your homes and cars and clubs. They sounded tough and confident, like they had agency over their mouths and bodies. They were the safe-sex sages, all swagger and sass and wisdom. As Salt, a.k.a. Cheryl James, told Rolling Stone in 1994... Quote, the song was not about sex. The song was about communication and talking about a subject that nobody wants to talk about. So just from the gate, for me, it was brilliant. Said Peppa, a.k.a. Sandra Denton, quote, it wasn't a dirty song. It was an enlightenment song. The track's sticky chorus goes, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. The video features couples kissing and embracing. And in one version of it, as the rappers get to the line and the bad things that may be in the last minute of the song, the camera cuts to a skeleton sporting a necklace that reads in big black letters, AIDS, with a red circle around it. Over the skeleton's mouth is a piece of yellow tape bearing the word censored. The image is actually a little chilling, like SMP's take on the 1987 Silence Equals Death slogan and poster with the pink triangle, which the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power or ACT UP would use as this defining image and their activist campaign against the epidemic. ABC newscaster Peter Jennings took notice. After overhearing his daughter playing Let's Talk About Sex, he gave the lyrics a closer listen and really dug its message. In February 1992, he enlisted salt and Pepper for Growing Up in the Age of AIDS, a TV special he was hosting asking them to re-record the track as Let's Talk About AIDS. The retooled version addressed AIDS and the ignorance and stigma surrounding it more directly than any mainstream pop or hip-hop artist had before. Sample lyrics? I got some news for you, so listen please. It's not a black, white, or gay disease. Then later, to the unconcerned and uninformed, you think you can't get it? Well, you're wrong. Don't dismiss, diss, or blacklist the topic. That ain't gonna stop it. Now, if you go about it right, you just might save your life. Don't be uptight. Come join the fight. As Peppa told Yahoo Entertainment in 2021, quote, at the time it felt like a sense of obligation. But when you listen to the lyrics, the awareness, we were ahead of our time, advocating for this message at the time. For him to change Let's Talk About Sex to Let's Talk About AIDS, it was a no-brainer for us to how to get that message out. Salt added, quote, One of the things that I really love about that particular moment is that people were afraid to talk about it at that time. It was a very unpopular, unspoken thing. We took it head on and we remade the song and we became advocates for AIDS and HIV awareness. I think that's a huge part of our history, something to celebrate. 
Salt and Peppa weren't the only hip-hop trio taking on safe sex at that point. Another would make it an integral part of their branding and aesthetic. The female threesome of Tion T-Boz Watkins, Rosanda Chili Thomas, and Lisa Left Eye Lopez, better known as TLC, sprang up at the beginning of 1992, and by the middle of that year, they'd blown up, becoming one of the most successful new acts of the year, and eventually one of the most successful acts of the 90s, period. You could draw a line from SMP to TLC. SNP formed in Queens, New York in 1985. TLC formed in Atlanta in 1990 when its members were in their early 20s, but they'd studied salt and Peppa and had taken a page from their book, bringing a similar strut and silliness to their music and visuals. They had a very clear identity from the get-go, coming off like the antithesis of the scantily clad, sultry women populating so many hip-hop videos at the time. They dressed like their male counterparts, but with less self-seriousness and more whimsy. Baggy jeans, oversized shirts, boxer shorts, and flashy colors. Their vibe was upbeat, frisky, self-assured. If you want to know what so much of the early 90s were about, at least the good times, just take a look at the cover of their 1992 debut album, Ooh, on the TLC tip. Joyous. In the video for the LP's lead single, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, the group channeled that whimsy, positive energy, and wild style into a good cause. If pinning condoms to their clothes for their entree into the world was pretty whack, Lisa Left Eye Lopez putting one over her left eye was just extra. But when your rhymes and flow are so thoroughly enjoyable as hers were, you can get away with looking like some Planned Parenthood pirate. Take the song's hook, for example. Yo, if I need it in the morning or the middle of the night, I ain't too proud to beg. If the lovin' is strong and he got it going on and I ain't too proud to beg. Two inches or a yard, rock hard, or if it's sagging, I ain't too proud to beg. So it ain't like I'm bragging, just join the paddy wagon cause I ain't too proud to beg, I ain't too proud to beg. Okay, I know it's weird when I recite rap lyrics, but as many of you have noticed, we can't play the songs on this podcast. Anyway, you have to admit that is a solid hook. The same way Sir Mix-a-Lot was promoting body positivity with Baby Got Back while still making it abundantly clear that he was horny as hell, these ladies were all about getting freaky but wrapping it up. Left Eye was literally slapping a condom on her face. She was a walking billboard for safe sex and then rapping about erect and soft penises. Speaking of billboards, this song hit number six on the Billboard Hot 100 and number two on the Billboard Hot R&B Hip Hop Songs chart. How did this shit make it on the radio? It's so penisy. But thank God it did. So how did the condom couture come about? Well, here's how Chili recalled it in a 2017 Teen Vogue interview. Quote, We were on our way to the studio one day, and a condom and safety pin were on the dresser. And when Left Eye came outside, T-Boz and I were waiting for her in the car, she had pinned the condom to her pants. From that day, it became part of our signature style. It wasn't a joke. It was serious messaging wrapped in such a way that TLC could actually get young, sexually active listeners to listen. Said Chili in the same interview, quote, some parents thought we were telling their kids to have sex, but we were making a fashion statement to make it easier to talk about sex. As Left Eye told the Los Angeles Times in 1992, quote, by making it a fashion statement, we're doing something more important, making a social statement. Kids listen to performers, and we have a duty to give them certain critical information. We want something eye-catching, so when kids see the condoms, they ask, why do we wear condoms and talk about condoms? That brings up the issue of safe sex. The point is to make condoms something kids aren't afraid of or ashamed of. In that same 2017 Teen Vogue interview, T-Boz specifically addressed HIV, saying, quote, During that time, so many people were getting diagnosed with HIV. People were talking about it, but not really talking about it. As role models, we knew we needed to start the conversation. TLC would pop up on talk shows to explain their messaging and continue wearing condoms in the videos for their next two singles, Baby, 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 and What About Your Friends? Both of which would hit the top 10 in 1992. 
For one scene of the Baby 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 video, they plastered the side of a dorm building with posters boasting the slogan, protection is the priority. The summer of safe sex continued. The trio would later write specifically about HIV and AIDS and their massive 1995 number one hit, Waterfalls. TLC and salt and Peppa did something inconceivable in 1992. They made music that stressed the importance of safe sex, but their PSA pop made it seem cool and fun. Another pop artist would take a different approach to discussions around sex and the AIDS crisis, a much bolder, in-your-face approach. In 1992, Madonna was already pop's reigning queen of subversion. But in the fall of that year, she would embark on her most provocative, shocking venture yet. The day after she dropped her dance-driven fifth studio album, Erotica, she would bring sex to the table, specifically the coffee table, releasing a glossy, racy, nudity-filled photo book simply titled Sex. The world was shooketh. Up next, after the break, we look back at the most controversial moment in Madonna's career and what many consider her most important. Plus, the story of how an artist affected by AIDS left a lasting impression on the band U2. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. It was October 1992. Madonna was not only the biggest pop star in the world, but also its most controversial, having blurred the lines between sex and religion and gender roles and turned a spotlight on interracial relationships and queer relationships. But that month, she would cross the line for many, releasing her provocative coffee table book, Sex, a collection of erotic photography and softcore pornography that depicted the singer and her clique in various positions, states of undress, and stages of ecstasy. Along for the ride, actress Isabella Rossellini, rapper Vanilla Ice, her lover at the time, model Naomi Campbell, gay porn star Joey Stefano, actor Udo Kier, and socialite Tatiana von Furstenberg. Homosexuality and sadomasochism were major themes. To shoot the book, Madonna enlisted fashion photographers Stephen Mizell and Fabian Barron, who spearheaded the relaunch of Andy Warhol's interview in 1990. For inspiration, they turned to the work of Guy Bourdin, Helmut Newton, and Robert Maplethorpe, known for his heavy use of queer S&M imagery. The singer wrote the words, casting herself as dominatrix and sex fiend Mistress Dita, a character inspired by 1930s film actress Dita Parlow. If the endeavor was audacious and risky, it proved more than any other modern art book that sex sells. 
to the tune of more than 1.5 million copies worldwide. Sex sold out, and it became the best and fastest-selling coffee table book ever. Madonna's goal was simple. Of course she wanted to shock the world. That was her raison d'etre. But like salt and Peppa and TLC, she also wanted people to break the silence and talk about sex, to stop seeing it as a verboten topic. As she asserted, quote, sexual repression is responsible for a lot of bad behavior. She said, and all my work, my thing has always been not to be ashamed of who you are, your body, your physicality, your desires, your sexual fantasies. The reason there is bigotry and sexism and racism and homophobia is fear. People are afraid of their own feelings, afraid of the unknown. And I am saying, don't be afraid. Like salt and Peppa and TLC, Madonna knew sex was killing people, but she also insisted that not talking about sex was also killing people. Talking about safe sex could save them. To drive that point home, the book, which was ring-bound with metal covers, came packaged in a zipped Mylar bag. The sealed bag was meant to evoke a condom wrapper, Madonna's clever and sexy little PSA. In celebration of the release of the book, the HMV Music Store in New York City hosted a special Madonna lookalike contest and set up a booth where people could pay a dollar a minute to paw through the book. The proceeds went to LifeBeat, a music industry organization founded in 1992 to help fund AIDS education, research, and prevention. Sex was released a day after Madonna's fifth album, Erotica. But for many, the brouhaha over the book eclipsed the music. Her detractors were tired of the singer's porny antics and attention-seeking and didn't even care to hear it. And of those who did take the time to listen, not everyone got it. Produced by Shep Pettibone, who co-produced her massive 1990 number one hit, Vogue, and Andre Betts, who produced her other 1990 number one hit, Justify My Love with Lenny Kravitz, the album had much more of a house and hip-hop vibe than her previous efforts. The record peaked at number two on the U.S. Billboard 200 album chart, becoming her first studio album since her 1983 debut not to top the chart. None of its singles hit number one. Madonna was 34 at the time. Some declared her career over. But for many, namely queer men, erotica is a 90s touchstone and a pop music touchstone. Sal Cinquamani is a filmmaker, the co-founder of Slant Magazine, and a writer whose work has appeared in Rolling Stone, Billboard, and The Village Voice. He falls into the camp of music lovers who would argue that while erotica isn't Madonna's best album, it may be her most important, partly because she refused to back down on something she considered critical. Frank conversations about sex and AIDS. Says Cinquamani. The more people push back on it, the more she wanted to put it out there. She wanted to be no holds barred, like just completely free, not thinking about the consequences because she didn't have any. You know, there were no, you know, she was going to be successful no matter what in her mind. In 1992, when sex had become scary, when many were equating sex with AIDS and death, Madonna forced her audience to confront it. Her music had always been fueled by sex. Most pop music was. But the Like a Virgin singer stripped back the artifice and made her carnal desires crystal clear. She had been crucified for that. But if there were ever a time to drill down on sex, she felt like this was it. Too many queer people were living their lives in secrecy. Too many of them were dying. And she knew she had the power to get people to pay attention. Yes, erotica contained songs about sex. The title track, in which Madonna embraces her Dita alter ego is total dom pop. As the pre-chorus goes, give it up, do as I say, give it up and let me have my way. I'll give you love, I'll hit you like a truck. I'll give you love, I'll teach you how to, oh. Where life begins is basically six minutes of innuendo for Conolingus. Welcome to our last episode, kids. All bets are off. However, where Life Begins also contains these lines. Are you still hungry? Aren't you glad you came? I'm glad you brought your raincoat. I think it's beginning to rain. A nod to safe sex. Safe sex, but sexy. Thing is, 
For all its naughtiness, erotica is mostly about the aftermath of sex, the repercussions of sex, the longing, frustration, fear, heartache, and self-destruction that comes after sex. See tracks like Bye Bye Baby, Waiting, and Bad Girl. And then there is In This Life, a ballad in which Madonna tackles the AIDS crisis head-on, specifically remembering two loved ones she lost to AIDS. She was already an AIDS activist at the time, having spoken and written about the disease with the release of her 1989 album Like a Prayer. But this was her first work that addressed AIDS explicitly. She wrote the track about the deaths of her close gay friend Martin Bourgogne and gay mentor Christopher Flynn. The song captures that rare Madonna moment when she drops the veil and bears her soul, revealing her pain and anger over not only her personal loss, but also homophobia and the ineptitude America had displayed in dealing with the disease. Why should he be treated differently? Shouldn't matter who you choose to love, she sings. Then, later, because now you're gone and I have to ask myself, what for? People pass by and I wonder who's next. Who determines who knows best? Is there a lesson I'm supposed to learn in this case? Ignorance is not bliss. That last line echoes the lyrics of George Michael's 1992 Red Hot and Dance cut, Do You Really Want to Know, when he sings, Because what you don't know can really hurt you. It can kill you, baby. Sinquamani was a young teenager when Erotica came out. He was drawn to it and listened to it nonstop. He was still figuring things out, but tracks like In This Life spoke to him. At that age, I sort of knew what she was talking about and I knew that it was about me. And so I think that's why, you know, young queer kids of my generation really sort of um, resonated with her so strongly because she was talking to us and we knew that, but we couldn't say that and we couldn't talk to our friends or family about it. But here was this woman talking to us about it directly and it really felt like there was a connection there if you listen to the album it really sort of helped you understand why she was so passionate about that issue and why she was fighting for that issue and then years later we find out you know that she was you know going to mexico to try to get experimental drugs and do all this stuff to try to save her friends you know it wasn't even about saving the world she just wanted to save her friends who were dying and it's really madonna singing about um the, her loss in 1992 Queer people felt like Madonna, who was already an icon in so many of their minds, was finally speaking to them directly. Why is it so hard to love one another? She asks on another erotica song, Why is it so hard? Her remake of Fever with its line, Everybody's got the fever, could induce chills. Whether it was intentional or not, the AIDS subtext was there. Madonna, at a peak of her career, you know, um, really coming out and being vocal about it and talking about not being ashamed and talking about safe sex and putting these things out in the open, I think really shaped my understanding of sexuality and safe sex. All of the impact that AIDS had on how we connect with people, how we have sex with people, um, how we feel about ourselves, all of that is encompassed in these songs that are seemingly not about AIDS. But it just, it's 1992. It's at the peak of, of the deaths and the peak of the publicity and fear mongering and teaching kids like me in health class that we're going to die, literally. As Sinquamani reached his 20s and then his 30s, as he came out and came to better understand AIDS and the history of the struggle for LGBTQ rights, erotica took on a deeper significance. I think its legacy is just that it reflects the fear of the time period. At that time, things that were happening with, you know, the repression of people's sexuality, the fear of, you know, the homophobia, all of that was rooted in fear of AIDS. And I think in that respect, the album is, I think, if not the first, one of the first full pieces, full albums that really is a reflection of the AIDS era. Stirred by personal loss, the biggest pop star in the world put pen to page to express her grief, confusion, and frustration through song. She wasn't alone. U2, the biggest rock band in the world in 1992, would also release a song that touched on the complexity and tragedy of AIDS. Their track one remains one of the group's most beloved. While frontman Bono preferred to keep its meaning ambiguous, 
allowing the song to connect listeners navigating a variety of struggles, he has said his admiration and friendship with queer HIV-positive artist and activist David Voynarovich at least partly inspired it. When he began writing the lyrics, he envisioned a difficult conversation someone like Voynarovich might have with their family. As Bono recalls in his 2022 memoir, Surrender, he improvised a lyric about a son telling his religious father that he was gay. Much like Madonna's In This Life, the song delivers no real resolution. Bono writes, I don't think we're all one. We can be one, but I don't think we have to see things the same way for that to be so. An anarchic thought. We're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other. Not that we got to, just that we get to. No answer. No 1980s we are the world idealism. Life had become more complicated in the 90s. But one does call for more empathy, a deeper understanding. The choice is yours how much you wish to carry. Give up, keep trying, or come to peace with it. Red Hot co-founder John Carlin introduced you two to Voynarovich. He'd written an essay for a catalog for one of Voynarovich's exhibitions. And after you 2 recorded a song for the first Red Hot compilation album, Red Hot and Blue, Carlin sent its members the catalog as a thank you gift. They became collectors of his work. When it was time for U2 to release one in February 1992, Carlin helped them commission Voynarovich's photograph, Untitled Buffalo, as the cover of the single. Voynarovich had created the black and white piece depicting a herd of buffalo falling over a cliff in 1988 when he was diagnosed. The image is stark and startling, chaotic and tragic. The animals plummet to their deaths. You want to save them but feel helpless. For many affected by AIDS during that period, the metaphor was clear. Carlin wrote the blurb on the back of the one single and arranged for its proceeds to go to AMFAR, the Foundation for AIDS Research. One version of its video, directed by Mark Pellington, who directed Pearl Jam's Jeremy video and the Red Hot and Dance documentary, showcased slow-motion footage of Buffalo, inspired by Voynarovich's image. Another version, filmed by Anton Corbin, featured the band in drag, but Bono thought it reinforced stereotypes that everyone suffering from AIDS was gay. The ultimate version was simpler, Bono smoking in a nightclub. As John Carlin, the man who brought you 2 and the artist together, tells it, the last time Voynarovich ever left his apartment was to see a U2 concert at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. By that point, Voynarovich had AIDS and was very close to dying. He had been estranged from his family, having run away from home like so many LGBTQ people in that era. Carlin wanted to reconcile him with his brother and sister, so he arranged an outing. I knew that they could not turn down tickets to see U2 and go backstage at the Meadowlands. So David came to the concert in a wheelchair. His uh, boyfriend, Tom Rothenbart, pushing. And one of the most moving moments was Bono on stage stops right before he sings the song one and says something to the effect of, you know, we're just pop artists, but there's a great artist in our midst. And they put the spotlight on David sitting there in his wheelchair and his brother and sister behind him and said, you know, this is a truly great artist. And it was just an amazing moment. Voynarovich died just months after one was released in July 1992. He was 37. You too would anonymously pay off his medical bills so that his estate didn't have to have a fire sale of his work. Since then, Bono has become one of music's most prominent HIV and AIDS activists. Others would die in 92. Again, AIDS-related illnesses were the leading cause of death for men between the ages of 25 and 44 that year. Artists whose lives were claimed by AIDS in 92 included Peter Allen, Tina Chow, Paul Jabara, Larry Levon, and Arthur Russell. There were many more.
This story doesn't have the happiest ending. I wish it did. Studies show a significant spike in the number of people infected with HIV and dying of AIDS in the 1990s. Between 1996 and 2001, more than 3 million people were infected every year. The number of AIDS-related deaths increased throughout the 1990s and reached a peak in 2004 and 2005, when in both years close to 2 million people died. But wow, have we come a long way. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported in 2021 that HIV incidents decreased by 73% from the highest number of infections, 130,400, in 1984 and 85, to 34,800 in 2019. Thanks to antiretroviral therapy, people with HIV and AIDS today can expect to live long lives. And we have countless activists, including musicians, to thank for that. By 1992, Elton John had lost his friend Freddie Mercury, whom he visited in his dying days, and another friend, Ryan White, a teenager who was infected with HIV by a blood transfusion and who died in 1990 just before his high school graduation. In October 1992, the same month Madonna's In This Life would appear on her album Erotica, John would release a single inspired by his loss, told from the point of view of a dying man reuniting with his estranged father, John's track, The Last Song, from his 1992 album, The One, was the first single he released to benefit the Elton John AIDS Foundation, the nonprofit organization he founded that fall to support education, prevention, treatment, and services to people living with HIV and AIDS. The Elton John AIDS Foundation is the second largest HIV-related funder of LGBTQ plus populations and the fifth largest HIV-related funder overall. Since 1992, it has funded more than 3,000 projects in over 90 countries and raised more than $525 million for HIV AIDS grants globally. For Red Hot co-founder John Carlin, 1992 was bittersweet, a time of great loss, but also a time of great change and great hope. I think around 1992 and doing all these Red Hot projects, I realized that, you know, artists had become the moral voice of our culture. And they weren't like heathenists. They weren't people who were like contrary, subversive forces. In some weird way, the politicians and the business people became reprehensible. They were the people you couldn't trust for guiding us through society. And somehow it became artists. You know, Bono, George Michael, for all their complexity as human beings, they have become our moral guide. In 1992, MTV would air its first episode of The Real World, kickstarting the modern reality TV movement and initiating the network's gradual move away from music videos. Music television would never be the same. But the music itself hit deep. In 1992, it felt massive, resounding, monumental. Grunge, G-Funk, New Age hip-hop, top-shelf R&B, line dancing, same-sex lust and love. Artists protesting against police brutality and child abuse. Artists protesting for LGBTQ rights and the fight to end AIDS. It was a time of shattered records, shattered hearts, and shattered expectations. Maybe we only fully understand how wild, shocking, and absolutely fabulous 1992 was now, some 30 years later. Music, a reflection of our culture? Yes. As John Carlin puts it, the moral voice of our culture? So often, yes. A way to affect change and shift our culture? Yes. And here's hoping it continues to as we soldier on. Because music has been all those things forever. But, oh my God, was it extra special in 1992.
Where Were You in 92 was a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jason Lafier, with editing and sound design by Michael Alder June. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else.